Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. Welcome to this fifth installment of the Biographies of Interwar Isms series. I'll keep my remarks uh, short. The series is co-organized by the Globe Bio Working Group, the New Diplomatic History Network, the Center for Modern European Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. The idea behind the series is very simple. Uh, we want to present innovative uses of the biography as a prism to explore the many isms of the interwar period, bridging the, its 19th century roots and its 20th and 21st century legacies. And uh, today we're delighted to welcome Professor David Murphy from the University of uh, Strathclyde, Glasgow, to give the lecture from colonial soldier to anti-colonial militant, the interwar activism of Lamise Segar. And to guide us through the discussion and uh, questions following the lecture, we are equally, equally delighted to welcome Henry D. Holstock, I believe, at the University of Glasgow. And with this, I hand the word over to you, Henry. Uh, thank you very much. Um... Yes, so David Murphy is a professor of French and post-colonial studies at the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow. Um, he's written a considerable uh, number of books, chapters and articles on Francophone West Africa, uh, ranging from a biography of Usman Samben, the acclaimed Senegalese director and writer, uh, a broader study of post-colonial African cinema, and a book on the 1966 World Festival of Negro Arts in Dakar. His current research moves to an earlier formative period of history centered on the life of Lamine Senghor, pictured here, and with a biography uh, with Versailles forthcoming hopefully in 2024. With that, I'll hand over to David. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Henry, and thanks to Hakon for the invitation. Uh, I, I really appreciate this opportunity to think through some of the sort of problems and, and challenges of, of trying to write a, a biography of a, of a figure like Lamin Senghor and what is useful about using him as a lens on, on, the, on that period in the, in, in the interwar years. So to get started, as the historian Michael Goebel has argued, Paris in the interwar period was the great anti-imperial metropolis, which attracted radicals from around the world including many black militants who sought to marry the causes of black internationalism and communism. One of the most important but still curiously neglected black militant figures of this period is the decorated Senegalese veteran of the First World War, Lamine Senghor, who for a few short years was perhaps the best known and most influential black anti-colonial activist of his time. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, as Henry sort of revealed in his opening remarks, I began my career as a scholar of the literary culture of Francophone West Africa. And I first discovered Lamine Senghor when conducting uh, research for an article on the genealogy of Senegalese literature. And that was back around 2005, six, I think. At that time, typically, uh, Senghor appeared in literary genealogies as a curiosity. Uh, a footnote, the author of a highly political allegory, uh, La Violation d'un Pays, or which I sometimes translate as the rape of a land, and that's one of the drawings from, from, the, from the book. Um, and that was published in 1927. However, in the course of my research for the article, I discovered the work of Anglophone cultural studies scholars, such as Christopher Miller and Brent Hayes Edwards, who took Lamine Senghor seriously who combed the colonial archives and who provided in-depth analysis of his writings. Through Miller and Edwards, I discovered the work of the historians Philippe de Witt and Olivier Sagna, who had done so much to uncover the archival traces of Senghor and his fellow African militants of the interwar period. I also began to note that increasingly, Senghor was being recruited by figures such as Robert Young and Vijay Prasad, as an early exponent of third worldism or tricontinentalism. I found this research fascinating, but it frustrated me that I kept encountering Senghor's writings through the same excerpts each time. So I resolved to publish his full collected writings, which I did in 2012. And that's um, the cover there. Um, that volume contained a long introduction in which I was able to sketch out what I knew at that time of his life and career. 
But I also knew there was a richer and more substantial story to tell, one that would explore the complex intersections of race, class and empire. That story would also centrally involve the tangled motives of a flawed human being who was ideologically committed to various causes, but also racked by concerns about his health and the well-being of his young family. And 10 years later, I'm still trying to complete that biography of Lamine Senghor, but I have uncovered a lot more than I knew in 2012. Over the next 30 minutes, then this paper will sketch the complex political trajectory of Senghor's short career as an activist before his, his early death in November 1927, aged just 38. His death came about as a result of serious injuries that he had sustained during the war. He had volunteered to serve the Imperial homeland and he received the Croix de Guerre in recognition of his bravery in combat. He survived a gas attack just outside Verdun in late 1917, but he lost a lung and subsequently contracted tuberculosis. This personal experience of the traumatic effects of modern mechanized warfare would shape his activism in complex ways. On the one hand, it would lead him to focus on the rights of African war veterans, while on the other, it would lead to a persistent sense of anxiety about his health and the welfare of his family. He was then a committed militant, but one who was consistently plagued by doubts. Indeed, as will be discussed later, the archives reveal that his initial encounters with the radical anti-colonial movements of the time were almost certainly a result of his recruitment as an informer by the Ministry for the Colonies. The colonial authorities quite literally led Lamine Senghor to become a radical anti-colonialist. Giving voice to his experience as a veteran and a colonized Black African, uh, Senghor discovered and embraced communism's critique of empire, but he also sought to forge a shared sense of Black identity across disparate groups, both within France and more globally. Before turning uh, to Lamine Senghor's life, I'd like to speak briefly about some of the archival challenges faced by a potential biographer, and to explain how in light of these challenges, I've decided to structure this paper for this particular forum and, and the Global Bios uh, Network. One of the ironies of researching the career of Senghor and other militants from the French Empire during the interwar period is that the archival trace of their actions and writings has largely been preserved by the colonial establishment that sought to police, contain, and at times suppress them. As the colonial population in France grew dramatically in the aftermath of the First World War, the Ministry for the Colonies established what they called a service de contrôle et d'assistance aux indigènes, which is generally abbreviated as the CAI um, and not the CIA, um, not to be confused there. As its title indicated, the CAI was de designed to offer assistance uh, to those in need, but its key function was one of uh, surveillance, that, that's in the control side of the title. The CAI managed to infiltrate virtually every association of colonial subjects that was established in France, from radical anti-colonialists to the most anodyne mutual assistance groups. The CAI's informers and agents reported on a monthly, weekly, sometimes daily basis, allowing us to build a picture, necessarily an incomplete picture, of the actions, motives, achievements of, and tensions within Black anti-colonial groupings, but always seen and read through the filter of the colonial mindset with its complex and often contradictory political and racial hierarchies. Now, I don't wish to rehearse here that all of the debates over the respective mer merits of reading against or along the archival grain. Essentially, for me, Senghor's story is one of those histories that has been silenced by the very process of historical production, as Michel Rolf Trouillot has argued, and I've put his quote there for you uh, to read through. Um, Senghor and the other largely working class activists in his milieu did not write memoirs memoirs, sorry, or leave copious trails of correspondence. Unlike the highly educated writers of the negritude, negritude movement that followed them a decade later, who wrote for mainstream French publishers, their writings appeared in ephemeral newspapers with a limited circulation. If we can piece together the collected writings of Lamine Senghor today, it is pr primarily because the CAI 
compulsively collected and, arch and archived these seditious publications that they wish to suppress. The very fact, however, that we have access to Senghor's articles and speeches, to some of his correspondence with the colonial state, to accounts of his private dealings with fellow activists and ordinary members of the black community, allows us, I would argue, to imagine a different story about him than the one the colonial authorities attempted to impose. In the remainder of this paper, I wish to focus on some of those gaps or mixed messages in the archive, those problematic moments when the biographer is forced to make complex decisions about what the archive reveals, or indeed um, about how the incomplete archival record might be complemented by other sources. If we are to focus on the gaps and ambiguities, what then are the agreed facts about Senghor's life? Um, so what can we agree on? Um, he was born in 1889 and enlisted to fight in the, worst world war, in the First World War, which is the worst world war maybe, in his mid-twenties. He was decorated for his bravery as a soldier during that war. He was repatriated to Senegal after the war, but he returned to France around 1922, where he married a young white French woman, Eugénie Comon, with whom he had two children, a girl, Marianne, and a boy, Den, who died in 1927, shortly before Senghor himself died. Senghor was a postal worker and a member of a mutual support group, La Fraternité Africaine, when he was thrust onto the political stage, appearing as a witness for the defense in a libel trial taken by the Senegalese uh, politician Blaise Diagne against the Caribbean novelist René Marron in November 1924. After that libel trial, Senghor became a mainstay of the Intercolonial Union, the UIC, an anti-colonial group created by the French Communist Party, the PCF. As a member of the UIC, Senghor was centrally involved in the PCF's campaign against the Reef War raged by France in Morocco against uh, um, the rebel leader Abdel Krim. Over the course of the campaign, Senghor became widely acclaimed as a skilled and persuasive orator. In early 1926, in an apparent split with the Communist Party, Senghor created the Committee for the Negro Race, the CDRN, which sought to forge a united black movement that would reconcile radicals and conservatives, assimilationists and black nationalists. For much of 1926, he engaged in a series of recruitment tours for the CDRN around France's port towns, where there was a sizable black community. By early 1927, however, the CDRN had split into rival factions. Those who sided with Senghor abandoned the CDRN to create the League for the Defense um, of the Negro Race, the LDRN. In February 1927, uh, just as the CDRN and LDRN were, were splitting, um, Senghor delivered what most commentators agreed was an electrifying speech at the inaugural conference of the League Against Imperialism in Brussels. And then in the summer of that year, Senghor's health failed and he eventually died in November 1927 um, amidst accusations that he had embezzled LDRN funds and there was a split within the movement once again. So the key facts that we can glean from the archive, how do we interpret some of the more troubling moments? So as my way into the discussion, I'm going to talk about the, 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 the moment when Sang Lamin Senghor enters onto the political stage and that's the trial um, between Blaise Diagne and um, uh, René Marron. So on the 24th of November, um, uh, 1924, Lamine Senghor, a hitherto largely unknown African veteran of the First World War, appeared as a witness for the defense in a libel trial at the Tribunal de Paris. The trial pitted the two most infamous black Frenchmen of their day against one another. The plaintiff, Blaise Diagne, was a deputy in the French parliament representing the four communes of Senegal, uh, who had played a key role in the recruitment of African soldiers during the recent war. While the main defendant, the Franco-Caribbean author René Marron, was a controversial figure in French public life after he was awarded the prestigious literary prize, the Prix Goncourt in 1921, for what was widely perceived at the time to be an anti-colonial novel, uh, Batuala. At the heart of the case was an alleged slander of Diagne by Marron in an unsigned article, The Good Apostle, for the reformist black newspaper, The Continents, in which it was claimed that Diagne had received, and I quote, 
a certain commission for each soldier recruited. Similar accusations had previously appeared in the mainstream French press, but Yanya regarded the publication of such claims in a black newspaper as a danger to his reputation as an advocate for equality. In many ways, Diania and Marron were unlikely enemies. Both were highly educated figures who believed profoundly in France's civilizing mission. And they argued for the full assimilation of black people into French culture. However, they found themselves on either side of the fault line created by the issue of the blood debt that France was deemed to owe to its colonial troops who had played such a vital role in the First World War. Over 130,000 black African troops had participated in the war with over 34,000 killed. Djanya had been sent to French West Africa in early 1918 with the grand title of High Commissioner for the Republic and had been greeted by the colonial establishment with all the pomp and ceremony usually reserved for visiting white dignitaries. This unprecedented celebration of a black African initially enhanced Djanya's reputation amongst France's many black subjects and its few black citizens. By the time of the libel trial, however, many reformist and radical black groups had concluded that Dianya had sold out to colonial interests. Promises made about black participation in the war leading to reform of the colonial system, as well as uh, increased access to rights and citizenship had proven illusory. Um, so the slide I'm showing you here is, is a cartoon that appeared in L'Humanité at the conclusion of the trial. And you see this um, denunciation of uh, Blaise Diagne as uh, somebody who turns his back on the dead. And they, he you know, hypocritically says that he, he wasn't a slave trader, he was just a recruiter uh, for the war. It's interesting that as a, just a, a pause in, in the running through of, of this story of the trial, that in um, researching Lamine Senghor's story in the archive, in, in the National Archives in Senegal, um, when you're sitting in the old reading room in what was called the building administratif, where the National Archives were housed, there was a bust um, sitting on a shelf uh, behind you when you were in the reading room. And who was on that bust? Um, but uh, Blaise Diagne. And it's very much Blaise Diagne, the person who was seen in the 1920s as having collaborated with the colonial regime, who is um, the figure remembered by the Senegalese state, the post-colonial Senegalese state, and the new airport in Dakar bears his name, and there was an avenue for a long time bearing his name. Whereas Lamine Senghor, I think there's one school in the entire country um, that has the name of Lamine Senghor in his hometown. So I mean, that's something I can maybe revisit in the questions with you. So by the mid-1920s, the First World War and France's blood debt towards its colonial troops had emerged as an issue on which the French Communist Party hoped to capitalize in recruiting colonized subjects to its cause. At the time of the trial, Senghor had been a member for just a few short months of the UIC, the Intercolonial Union, an organization created by the communists in 1921 with the aim of providing a forum in which a broad transcolonial front against empire might develop. It was nominally an independent group run by and for representatives of the colonized peoples. And shortly before Lamine Senghor joined in Green A. Kwok, uh, the future Ho Chi Minh was one of the most active members of the group in those early years. The UIC was though in fact controlled by the PCF's Colonial Studies Committee. In the columns of the UIC's newspaper, the Pariah, were to be found some of the most violent denunciations of empire of the period, and it often linked the brutality of the First World War with brutality in the colonies. And you can see here an example of the, the, that um, uh, mixing of the imagery of the battlefield and the, uh, of the um, sort of uh, oppression in the, in the colonies. It was two, two, two sides of the same coin, basically. Deploying Lamine Senghor as a key figure in its propaganda efforts was, in this respect, a clever strategy um, by the communists and, and the UIC. The fact that Senghor had fought loyally and bravely for France made it that much more difficult for the French authorities to dismiss him as a subversive, and Senghor's status as a war veteran would remain central to almost every article and speech he would write over the next three years. 
The strategy also made sense in the immediate context of the Gianniolic uh, and the and uh, of the Gianniolic Marron trial, as it was an opportunity for the communists to reach out to other anti-colonial forces. In 1924, the Comintern had called on communists to seek alliances with all anti-colonial nationalist movements, and the trial was perceived as an opportunity to create a united anti-colonial front. This united front would only last a few years, but it is in this context that Lamin Senghor's activism should be situated. In many respects, he became the figure who embodied on the national and international stages the sacrifices that colonial troops had made. I've thus far explored the reasons why the communists were keen to deploy Lamin Senghor as part of its anti-colonial strategy. But what motivated Senghor himself? The question of why this once loyal colonial soldier became a leading anti-colonial militant is difficult to answer with certainty, but it is clear that Dianya, um, that the sorry, it is clear that the Dianya libel trial was a turning point in his life. Just a few months previously, Senghor had been a member of La Fraternité Africaine, which is also referred to in CAI records as La Fraternelle Senegalaise, uh, one of many small, largely apolitical community groups created to cater for the growing number of African colonial subjects on French soil. Early in the autumn of 1924, Senghor was recruited by the CAI as an informer and told to infiltrate the more radical intercolonial union. As was often the case with the recruitment of informers, the CAI, CAI most likely played on Senghor's financial worries. For this sickly young Senegalese man had a French wife and a young child, both of whom he wished to bring to his homeland but he lacked the resources to do so on his modest salary as a postal worker. When his wife wrote to the leading black lawyer and activist, Kojo Tuvalu Huenu, who was ironically the owner of the continents, the, the newspaper involved in the trial with Yanya, and uh, indicating the very small world of the black community at that time, to request financial help, help with their return to Africa, the letter was passed on to the Ministry for the Colonies, which seems to have used Senghor's financial predicament as leverage. Within weeks, however, the Dianya libel trial erupted and Senghor was thrust forward as a defense witness, pressured to take part, or so the CAI, CAI archives, um, archives tell us, by his new comrades in the Intercolonial Union, despite his apparent misgivings about being involved in such a high profile case. In court, the young militant found himself face to face with the man who had promised so much to the African soldiers who had fought in the First World War. The CIA archives on La Fraternité Africaine also reveal a tantalizing glimpse of another potential explanation for Senghor's radicalization. Shortly before the trial began, a delegation from the group was due to meet Blaise Diagne at the French parliament. Was Senghor part of that delegation? Did Diagne say something in relation to the war or the trial that offended Senghor? The archives don't actually tell us, <laughs> but it, it, I, I'm going to try and keep digging to see if I can work a way to, to, to get to that answer. We don't have access to Senghor's actual testimony in the trial, but shortly afterwards he would write a general account of it for the Pariah, the, the UIC's newspaper, and this is what he wrote. Instead of attempting to prove precisely how much the great slave trader, Aigianya received for each Senegalese he recruited, they should have brought before him a whole procession of those blinded and mutilated in the war. All of these victims would have spat in his face the infamy of the mission he had undertaken. For Olivier Sanya, uh, Senghor's testimony during the trial reveals that more, and I quote, more than the UIC militant, it is the war-wounded veteran whose uh, wounds have been reopened who speaks. This, it would seem, was the moment Senghor began his transformation into a genuinely radical activist, the part that the CAI had initially asked him to play. The context of Senghor's entry into the world of radical black anti-colonialism understandably raises questions about his individual actions and motivations, but more, also more widely about the marginal position of black radicals in this period. It seems evident from the colonial archives that well into 1925, Senghor retained the hope that he would be repatriated to Senegal by the colonial authorities. Even writing to the Governor General of French West Africa on the 9th of March of that year to request this, 
Whoever Senghor changed his mind before a response had been sent, fearing that the radical turn he had taken over recent months would lead to brutal repression upon a return to his homeland. This, seem, this seem, does seem like the definitive moment when Senghor threw in his lot with the anti-colonial movement. But as late as October 1925, um, seven months later, the archives reveal an instance where his former handler, the wonderfully named Geoffroy Ducoudre at the CAI, intervened on Senghor's behalf uh, with the Ministry for the Interior. The context was this. Senghor and his fellow uh, UIC member, uh, Max Blancourt from the Antilles, French Antilles, had been invited via the PCF to attend the World Congress, Congress of Black Workers in Chicago. Now, I knew of this story through the archives and the work of David and Sanya, as the moment when Senghor's frustrations with the PCF boiled over and he departed to create the Committee for the Defense of the Negro Race. For the PCF had told Senghor and Blancourt that they would have to pay their own way to Chicago. This might not have been too bad for Blancourt, who was a lawyer, but Senghor, the menial postal worker, was told he could either work his passage on the ship or he'd have to stow away. However, the file in the National Archives that, that I, I encountered explains that Ducoudre asked the Interior Ministry to provide Senghor with a passport for the Congress as he was still one of their agents. So this is seven months after what had seemed to be um, the break uh, with the CAI. What is the biographer to make of this information? Was Senghor really still in the pay of the CAI? Was he playing a double game, receiving money or support uh, for informing on his comrades while still committing to the radical anti-colonial cause? I think it's impossible to reach a definitive conclusion, but, but my own best guess based on the evidence is that the CAI was from late 1925, increasingly seeking to place pressure on Senghor to remain one of their agents. By late 1925, Senghor's health had deteriorated to the point where he was receiving 100% invalidity payments from the French state. The fact that he was a citizen, um, and I'll explain citizenship versus subject later on in, in a moment, um, meant that he was receiving double the sums paid to former colonial soldiers who were mere subjects. The only trouble with this situation was that Senghor had been born south of Dakar in the town of Joala. As this was not one of the four historic communes of the old colony, Senghor was in fact not a citizen. So you had to be an, uh, an inhabitant of one of those four communes, which is a tiny part of Senegal, Dakar, Gore, uh, Rufisque and Saint-Louis were the four historic communes and with a population of about 10,000 voters uh, at the time. Um, so the first steps of the Ministry for the Colonies investigation into Senghor's citizenship were taken in the summer of 1925 and they accelerated from the autumn onwards. They soon discovered that in July 1920, after Senghor had returned to Senegal briefly, he had obtained a court order um, declaring him to be a citizen based on the testimony of two witnesses. And you could quite literally walk into the court with two witnesses and say, I swear that Lamine Senghor is the son of such and such who was born next door to me in Dakar, and, and this, this allowed him to be a citizen. The ministry then set in motion a legal process to remove Senghor's citizenship which slowly wound its way through the judicial system in Dakar, reaching its conclusion in early 1927. The French state does not appear to have acted on this, i.e. Senghor did not lose his benefits, partly it would seem for fear of the ne negative publicity it would bring, for the PCF would surely have launched a campaign denouncing this as victimization of a devoted colonial soldier whose health had been destroyed in the service of France. But the attempt to place pressure on Senghor and potentially to damage further damage his health due to stress was effective for the CAI archives contained repeated references to Senghor's money worries and his fears that he would lose his full pension and invalidity payments. Now, let's take a step back from the specifics of Lamine Senghor's case and think about the lessons they teach us regarding the wider issues for black radicals. Above all, I would argue that Senghor's case underlines their marginal position on French soil, um, both politically and personally. Indeed, all through the interwar period, the CAI was hugely successful in recruiting informers within black groupings of all stripes. 
Most radical movements are to some extent vulnerable to state infiltration, but these black groupings seem to have been particularly exposed as the CAI preyed on the financial concerns of individuals without an extended family or social network to support them in hard times. In addition, black communists were deeply conscious that their peripheral position within the PCF might lead to support being abruptly curtailed whenever the ideological winds from Moscow changed direction. Now, in the time remaining to me, I want to look at something that is present in the archives, but as, that is consistently downplayed as not perceived to be essential to the police surveillance of anti-colonial militants, namely the friendship between different militants. This is not merely anecdotal, and I think the biographer can play a key role in tracing how friendship and direct human contact led to alliances or the decisions to join a movement that any number of speeches or political rallies might not have achieved. In this context, I've long been fascinated by an unusually long and detailed CAI report by an agent codenamed Jossin on Senghor's stay in Marseille in September of 1926 as part of his uh, recruitment tour for the CDRN. In the early pages of the report, we find the usual ideologically charged dismissal of Senghor as a dangerous subversive. By the report's conclusion, however, this had been replaced by a grudging respect and the recognition that much of the work of persuasion was happening in locations where the CAI and the local police simply could not follow. And this is the quote from Jossin. He writes, Senghor deployed a prodigious level of activity, especially when he, we consider that he is classified as having 100% invalidity status. Despite the setbacks he's endured, he has displayed a disconcerting obstinacy and he is tireless in pursuing his goal. He travels from one boat to another, from one company to another, going everywhere where he might find a colored man. This created such a stir that many blacks already look upon him as their future liberator. Since Senghor arrived in our port, there has been a mood of enthusiasm all through the native quarters. Now, when I read CAI, CAI or police reports from other towns, such as Bordeaux or Le Havre, which provided condescending self-satisfied accounts of failed political meetings and rallies, I wonder, are they simply ignoring or, or are they unaware of the political work that is happening in places where they really just could not follow? And that's why I found um, texts such as Claude Mackay's writings um, really fascinating. So both, both fiction and uh, his memoir, the, the novel Banjo on the, the, the Black community in Marseille is, is, is really fascinating and has Lamine Senghor as a character. And also he, Senghor appears in A Long Way From Home, his memoir from 1937. If we turn to questions of friendship between anti-colonial militants, um, the UIC, the Intercolonial Union, and the League Against Imperialism are particularly interesting examples. Transcolonial movements such as these would all eventually splinter into national anti-colonial groupings, but that should not lead us to dismiss the former too hastily. Long after Senghor had left the Intercolonial Union, Indo-Chinese anti-colonialists with whom he was friendly would attend meetings of his various black groups. Equally, at the inaugural meeting of the League Against Imperialism in Brussels in February 1927, Senghor appears to have developed close ties to Masali Hajj and the Algerian delegation from the Etoile Noafricaine based on bonds of religion and a shared colonial oppressor. The UIC and the Brussels Congress can thus be seen as sites, um, excuse me, where the political and the personal coalesced venues in which one's own often lonely struggle against the might of empire could find support from like-minded souls. Indeed, the CAI report on the Brussels Congress notes ruefully that it had been an inspira inspirational event for many of those present. One delegate cited in the CAI report describes it as the dawn of the great day that they had been waiting for. Um, no, I know I, I'm realizing running over that half hour I'd originally agreed to do. So I, I'm just going to skip over a, a little bit here at the end uh, in talking about the, the Congress of the League Against Imperialism uh, in Brussels. So uh, just this is one of the most famous images we have of Lamine Senghor, which you, you see reproduced a lot in, in Senegal um, by left wing groups who, who supported him. And it's a substaged pose 
from, from the, the, the Congress. And this is an extract from the speech for which he, he would become um, famous, um, which, con which concludes with the, that um, rallying cry of no more slaves, um, which, which is sort of very much associated with him ever since. The speech was a great success in the hall and was met with claim by the other delegates. Um, and if you look at the, the, the proceedings of the League Against Imperialism and the photographs, Lamin Senghor is, is at the center of so many of them with the other delegates and having their, their arms draped around him. Um, his speech in Brussels was in effect a distillation of the key ideas um, he had developed since the Janja trial. It would be misleading to make claims for Senghor as a groundbreaking political theorist, for his speeches and his articles did not seek to provide in-depth analysis of the links between capitalism and empire. He was rather a brilliant communicator of ideas, driven by moral outrage at the injustices of capitalist imperialism. A passionate public speaker, he was able to energize audiences large and small and distill complex political ideas into a series of resonant images. At certain points in history, the actions and personality of key individual actors can be deployed, I think, to seize opportunities created by a complex set of political and economic factors. So just moving to a, a very brief conclusion here. Upon Senghor's death at the end of 1927, the anti-colonial cause lost one of its most prominent figures. Initially, it was his communist comrades who mourned his passing as the French communist newspaper, L'Humanité, published a fulsome obituary just days after his death. And in a telling indication of the estrangement between Senghor and his erstwhile comrades in the black movement, the members of the committee of the LDRN only learned of his death upon the publication of Humanity's uh, obituary. For its part, the League Against Imperialism viewed Senghor's untimely demise as a useful propaganda opportunity, transforming the Senegalese into a martyr whose death had been caused, it claimed, by vile French imperialists. The LAI's version of his passing has proven enduring. Uh, I, and I've actually come across it in some contemporary books who've obviously gone to Willy Munzenberg, um, who's the source of, of this story. Um, he wrote uh, a couple of months after Senghor's death that Senghor had died in prison after months of incarceration, arrested as punishment for his part in the Brussels Congress. In fact, Senghor had spent one night in prison in Draguignan uh, in March 1927 after an altercation with an overzealous and potentially racist gendarme. Senghor's early death thus allowed him to join a pantheon of communist and anti-colonial mar martyrs, the purity of their devotion to the cause proven by their ultimate sacrifice. As this paper has sought to demonstrate, however, the reality of Senghor's life was far more complex than this political mythology allows. Munzenberg's celebration of Senghor's entirely fictional martyrdom seems all the more grotesque to my mind, as he, like many white European communists, was blind to many of the real indignities and suffering inflicted on black anti-colonial activists. For instance, it is highly unlikely that any of the white delegates at the LAI Congress in Brussels suffered the indignity of being turned away from their hotel rooms due to the color of their skin, as reportedly happened to Senghor, and, and this is uh, mentioned in Masali Haj's memoirs. White European communists quite literally could not understand the racial concerns of their black comrade, comrades. In political terms, Senghor spent the period between 1924 and 27 exploring different potential ways of rallying various forces against empire while recognizing the specificity of the racial oppression suffered by Black people. In human terms, Senghor was by turns a loyal servant of France, an informer, a communist, a Black internationalist and anti-colonialist, and through it all, a concerned father of two young children, constantly fretting about how he might provide for his family. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you. Hakam, have you got uh... <laughs> You've got a burning question. Yeah, thank you very much for this. Uh, really, a, a tour de force, I would say, opening up some really interesting avenues of thinking about what the biography can do. Uh, and I wanted to touch upon these things first, perhaps. Uh, also, since you are in a in a in a writing process, uh, uh, um, 
as I am as well, doing a biography of a man um, who was also transformed by the First World War in many ways, um, and also has a very uneven, let's say, source base. So sometimes there's a lot on this person I'm writing about, is an Ottoman Greek who ends up in the League of Nations, uh, and at other times there's just about nothing, uh, periods of his life. Uh, but then one of the strategies I've, I've employed is to use these kind of uh, disparities as, as a way of shaping what kind of, what kind of biographical tools am I applying here? So, so for his early education and, and, and the, in, in the, um, Istanbul and other places, uh, or Constantinople and other places, I use the institutional lens of these various educational institutions, right, to tell the story of where he's moving, while having very, very little trace of his voice. But I might know, you know, okay, what kind of courses he took or something like that. In other parts of his life, uh, he worked in the League of Nations. Uh, you have a very thick description of the of uh, the bureaucracy and the kind of the, the bureaucratic procedures of the kind of work he was doing, but very little sense of his feelings, his his uh, his his uh, more personal relationship to the kinds of work he was doing. But then you can. Well, then you can use, for example, he has an oral testimony, and then you can construe that and try to read that into the institutional history. And I sensed in a way that you have to do quite a lot of strategizing in terms of how you write about, and, and you mentioned a few of them here, I, uh, but I, maybe there are more. So I would be very curious, um, uh, just to mention a last example, uh, during the Second World War, this same character I'm writing on, are very little on on what he was doing uh, um, in his personal life, but I have a diary of a very good friend, and so then you then you kind of write a different history, right? Where where the voice is the the friend, the close friend who is worrying about him and that and worrying about his health at that point, and and that becomes a very interesting intimate filter where you also write about this friend and his positionality vis-a-vis -vis this friend. So just to say, I'm very curious to hear about what kind of um, explicit, let's say, strategies in terms of vantage points, uh, filters, as you said, also reading against and with uh, the material you have, uh, whether you use that uh, and how you use that in, in, in your work uh, uh, with Lamin Senghor. So yeah, no, no, that, 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 yeah. no, thank you very much, Hakan. That, that that's a very very interesting question and and relates very well because yeah, that, I think biographers can co discover those moments where there's nothing, and you're looking at the archive and you go, there's a whole period of his life. Even the the CAI when they're doing um, accounts, they're, they're providing an account of, of Senghor's trajectory. They don't know what he was doing in Senegal before he became a soldier. Is that there's, there's nothing there, and so you know where you discover where he's from, and there was a very interesting thing about his education, and I'll, I'll talk about that first. So in the there are these constant asides in the um, uh, the colonial archives when they're writing reports saying that there's no way Lamine Senghor could have written these speeches, that they were all written by um, because in the racial hierarchies of the time that it was the, um, the, the black activists from the Caribbean who were seen as more intelligent. So somebody like Max Blancourt, who was a lawyer, it said that he, he dictated the speech for uh, uh, Senghor to, to deliver. And it's assumed that he was pretty much uneducated, that he hadn't, he hadn't had any formal education whatsoever. And this was this sort of gray zone, and I was trying to do it in the way you talked about what institutionally, what was the likelihood of somebody like Lamine Senghor from his background having gone to a colonial school and so on. And um, it was actually, I thought I was going to have to do it in that sort of institutional way of balance of probabilities, the type of background, the job he got. We do know he got a job in an office in Senegal prior to being mobilized. And would that imply that he could read if he had that type of job or was he running errands? And 
it was eventually when I when I published the collected writings of um, uh, of Lemming Singor about ten years ago. I just took a punt and went to uh, Joal, and I, a friend in Dakar had, had had grown up there, and he told me the one school in Senegal that has his name is in Joal. So I just went there and uh, brought copies of the book to, and so I got toured around all the classes to present this book and found on the wall of the school that mural, the, 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 the side pose of Lamin Sengo with his fist raised that I showed you, it was on the, on the school wall. Um, and they sent off for his family and I made contact with the family within about 15 minutes. His descendants still lived, there were still some in the area. And they were able to tell me that through the family story that he, he'd actually been sent away to a relative who was a school teacher and he had been educated through the, the colonial system and he may not have had a, you know a very sustained education period but they were also the, the primary education you received uh, under the colonial system was pretty rigorous and so that he could read and write and so he, he had been exposed to um, you know the ideas and 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 you know, knowledge that you gain from a colonial school education, so that was one of the ways it was pretty much going to an oral source and, and finding out through that family story, and that was really fascinating as well because the um, the person I was speaking to was a descendant of one of Lamine Senghor's sisters, um, so she actually knew Lamine Senghor's mother. Um, as a small child, and she lived on until the 1950s, and was she could she still had those stories of the trauma of Lamine Senghor never making it home, and the body is buried in the south of France, and the family were, aren't sure exactly of the location. So that the, the, there's more work I need to do with the family, because I think that there I have a list of questions about things where I'd like to find out more to try and tease that out with them. Um, and I mean, one of the funny things, I didn't say it in this paper, I've, I've given papers in the past on Lamine Senghor, and I've had a sort of maybe at a conference where they're not coming from my talk in particular, and they think, they come away thinking, oh, I didn't know that, that about Leopold Senghor, and he, <laughs> he's a different person entirely, and they're not related, and they were able to explain to me about the, the, the family lineages and the typical names and so on. The other thing, when you talk about the closest I've got to what you spoke about there, um, about you know a friend who's written a memoir and they're worry, worried, or written a document and they're worried about the, the, the person you're writing about, is through the work of Claude Mackay. Um, and I'm sort of looking for other sources such as that. There's a, there's a wonderful scene in Claude Mackay's A Long Way From Home, which is so is written so perfectly as a scene, it's, it's as though it's a scene in the novel. And I find it very hard to believe it happened in this way, that he's eavesdropping in a bar in um, Senegal, oh, sorry, in Senegal, in Marseille, with the Senegalese bar owner, who's been away to America and come back with a white American, with a, and he has a white wife. Yeah, he's married, married a white French woman. And Lamine Senghor has a white French wife. And they're there talking about the radical cause and whether you should be married. Can you be a leader of the cause if you have a white wife? And just in terms of access to what you know, the personal side of what were the ambiguities of his position? And there are all sorts of comments in the archives, snide remarks about him having a French wife and what this means. And could he really take her back to Senegal? And to see that fictionalized and played out in, in, in Mackay's writings, it gives you a glimpse of the ideas that were there in the community. What would, he, what would the comments have been made to him? You know, you, very much there's a post-Garveyite moment there uh, in the 1920s where it's not, you know, as a, as a race man, you shouldn't have a white wife. And he's getting these comments uh, from, from, from various people. So I think that's been one of the ways. So I'm still scouring um, the, the, the record. An area where I've been sort of disappointed is that the people within the French communist movement that Langin Senghor worked with most closely were those who'd come through a group called uh, AHAC, which was the Association Républicaine des Anciens Combattants. And there was a sort of pacifist group of, it was a pacifist veterans movement. There were very right-wing veterans movement, but this was a pacifist left-wing. And a lot of them moved towards um, the communist party. People like Paul Vaillant-Couturier, 
who was the editor of L'Humanité for several years, um, and Henri Barbus, the novelist, who, who, who wrote the famous anti-war novel uh, um, Under Fire, I think it is in English, Le Feu. Um, but I can, I thought, well, he worked closely with them. Maybe in their writings, there'll be references to him. And I can't find any. And I'm troubled by that in that, you know, was he insignificant to them? And I'm trying to interpret that silence uh, when I revisit that section of the book. I keep thinking, I'll keep digging to see, can I find more? And that's, it's the worrying thing about the conclusions I draw, because you can see all of these areas where, French communists use black anti-colonial militants when they need them and then drop them. And I wonder, is this another instance of that? So there, there, there are a few examples, I hope, which answer some of your question. Yes, very much. I mean, uh, but that's I, the last instance there, that's, that's where a silence becomes very productive, right? Potentially, mm. it tells a very specific story about yeah, the instrumentality of, of this relationship, perhaps, that, that can be brought out through the silence, the non the, the non traces of, uh, of Lamin uh, uh, in, in these kinds of sources. Yeah, because there are people who did, so the, the, the book I showed you, um, the, 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 I mentioned and showed you the image from uh, the La Violation d'un Pays. Um, Vaillant Couturier wrote the preface um, to, to, to the book and it just started making you wonder, oh, maybe they were close and, um, but I can't find any reference to Senghor in anything written by um, Vian Couturier. And there's this troubling thing, which I don't know if it's Vian Couturier or if it's the publisher, but um, in the preface, he spells Senghor's surname incorrectly. Now, everybody does this in the archives, they keep spelling his surname incorrectly. It's a bit like you know the opening of Faulty Towers where the name of the hotel, <laughs> they spell it with a H at the start, with an E on the end. And But I used to think he's his friend. Is he? Or is he this acquaintance? Or you start interpreting things like this of how much did he know? And was this a gig he had to do for the movement? And he wasn't really, there was no bond there. So I think the evidence is pointing in that direction. Um, but I'm going to try and keep digging to, to, to be more exhaustive, just to make sure I'm not jumping to hasty conclusions. Thanks, David. Um, yeah, that was a really sensitive reflection on how to read archives, um, incorporate friendship, family illness, co-optation by the state, questions of race, class. Um, yeah, covered a, covered a huge amount of ground. Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society.